Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. Hear the word of the Lord. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When Sandy and I were dating, one of the things we enjoyed doing was reading out loud together. And we read through C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, how many of you are familiar with Chronicles of Narnia? It's uh, C.S. Lewis's children's children's literature about this land called Narnia where Aslan, the lion, reigns. And we had read six of the seven uh, of the, uh, the volumes, the chronicles, and then we were saving the last one for our honeymoon. We had a couple-week honeymoon. The first week was up in the mountains in North Carolina, and we thought, well, this will be fun. We'll finish the series reading together. And so we started reading. But things did not go as planned, because in the, the last one, which is called The Last Battle, things just keep going wrong. They just keep going from bad to worse. And every time you think that it can't get any worse, it does. And, and cruelty and, and deception and, and wickedness and, and uh, deceit, they, they just seem to get, get stronger and stronger. And, and you keep reading and keep reading and you wonder, when is this ever going to get better? And Sandy was so distraught because she so enjoyed Narnia. I think it was her first visit to Narnia. She was so distraught and she said, I hate Narnia. I never want to go to Narnia again. And I kept saying to her, just keep listening because you have to get to the end of the story. You have to see how it all comes out. And that's what Peter's telling us today. You have to get to the end of the story. Things, things may look bad. In Peter's day, they looked bad. In our day, they continue to look bad. But Peter's saying, you have to get to the end of the story to understand the whole story. And that's what we do in these, these last couple sections here. We get to the end of the story. And that end of the story makes the whole story make sense. And here, Peter says, pay attention to the end. Because this is the end of the story. The story of the heavens and the earth. And it's the end of our story as well. Now, what Peter does here is he transitions if you've been following along in this series, you know that he's been interacting with false teachers from the end of chapter 1. He blasts them in chapter 2, and he continues to, to deal with them and their denial of the coming of the Lord 
through chapter 3. But here he takes a positive turn. Up until this point, he has been defending against their denials. And now he begins to preach positively the truth. In verse 10, he makes that, that pivot and he says, But the day of the Lord will come. And now he's doing positive teaching about the day of the Lord. And he says three things about it. And one is this, the first one is this, that it will come. It will come. And that is a flat contradiction of the denial of the false teachers who said, it will never come. Nothing like this has ever happened, and so nothing like this will ever happen. Now he's already dealt with that argument in chapter, in chapter 2, but now he's saying, no, it will come. And this is the confession of the church through all ages that He will come again. That's the first thing. And then He says how He will come, in what manner He will come. He will come like a thief. Now, how does a thief come? Does a thief send you an email and said, I'll be by your house next week on Thursday at 8 p.m.? Does a thief do that? What does a thief do? A thief just shows up when you are not expecting. And so, He will come surprisingly He will come like a thief. And by the way, here, it's saying it will come. It is personifying this day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, which is, by the way, an expression from the prophets. We find this in the prophets about the day of the Lord. And the New Testament takes that over and calls the day of Jesus the day of the Lord, the coming of Jesus. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the other thing he says about the day of the Lord is that it will bring about universal destruction. Verse 10 still. The day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies, it says the elements, this is probably the right interpretation here, that the elements of the universe, the heavenly bodies, will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, this last expression has puzzled interpreters for centuries. Because what it says literally, and there's probably a footnote in some of your Bibles, it says that the heavenly bodies, they will be burned up, the earth and the works that are done in it will be found. They will be found. And, And that seems to be contradictory. How if the world just got burned up, how are these things going to be found? And here it's translated, will be exposed. And we have an expression like that. They will be found out. This, this is what this fire will do. It will, it will find out the works on the earth. And this is language that we find in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul talks about burning, and he talks about what it will do. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Uh, verses 10 to 15, he says, in verse 10, he says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each work Each one's work will become manifest for the day, the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by what? Revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has 
done. It's the same sort of language. So the fire will burn things up, but it will also reveal what is there. When we lived in Guadalajara, one of my activities was mountain biking. I don't get to do much mountain biking here in South Florida anymore, uh, but we lived in the mountains. And there were trails. One of the trailheads was just a, a couple hundred yards from our house. And so I could just get on my bike and be on these trails in the woods. And we had, fairly frequently around there, but once it got much closer to us, we had a forest fire. And many of our neighbors evacuated. We didn't. We didn't think it could quite get to us. But it was got very close, and it, it burned up our mountain. And it burned through quickly and, and, and cleaned out all the underbrush. But I remember getting up the next morning and looking up at the mountain, and the, the brush was all burned away, and I could see the paths that I took many days revealed on the mountain. And I was fascinated because when you're on the path in the woods, you can't see how it goes. And I could step back and I could see these paths. I thought, I didn't know it went that way and then that way and that way. What revealed it? The fire revealed it. And that's what he's saying here. These paths, the paths on the earth, that which is done on the earth, it it will be found out. It will be exposed. It will be revealed because that day will Reveal it. Now, what was part of the motivation of the false teachers for denying the coming of the Lord? Because they knew that the coming of the Lord was coming, even as the, the, the uh, creed says, coming to judge the living and the dead, and they didn't want that. They didn't want to have anything to do with God's judgment. And so, in order to get rid of God's judgment, they got rid of the, the day of the Lord. And that was convenient for them. And then they could lead the selfish, greedy, immoral lives that they wanted to lead. And so their morality was tied up with their theology as it always is in everyone. And so they denied the coming of the Lord in judgment so that they could be free to live their their greedy, selfish, immoral lives without fear of judgment. And so, the denial of the day of the Lord has moral implications, ethical implications about how we live our lives. But Peter says the opposite is the case as well. And that's the positive point he wants to make here. In verse 11, he makes that pivot. He says, since, and here he begins to apply. And really, this is the message of the rest of this letter. Since... Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. And here's the, so, uh, the rhetorical question. What sort of people ought we to be? That's the question. What sort of people were the false teachers? Well, we know what they were. And why were they like that? Because they denied the coming of the Lord. But if we affirm the coming of the Lord, then the question is, what sort of people ought we to be. And here, here the, the rubber meets the road. Here is the application for our lives. And then he explains. He says, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Lives of holiness and godliness. This word lives is in behaviors. In behaviors, in lifestyles of holiness and godliness. Many different lifestyles, that is to say, many different conducts, many different behaviors, but all of which are characterized by holiness and by godliness. Some characteristics we saw back in chapter 1, when he was encouraging us to add to our faith 
these virtues that come from faith. Now, um, this is this is the moral implication here. But it's fascinating that in verse 12, he says, waiting for, and then he adds, hastening. Hastening the coming of the day of God. That sounds very curious, doesn't it? Now, we, we get the idea of waiting for. And, and it calls it here, interestingly, almost uniquely, calls the day of the Lord, which is also called the coming of the Lord. Here it calls the day of God. And you see with what facility the, the writers of the New Testament put Jesus in the place of God in these sort of expressions. The coming of Jesus, the day of the Lord, the day of God, all the same thing. And we, we understand the idea that we're waiting for it. Because who determines uh, when God comes? Well, God does. Who, who determines when the Lord comes? The Lord does. Who determines when Jesus comes? Jesus does. Is that in our hands? Well, sort of. And that's what Peter is saying. He's saying, hastening the coming of the day of God. And that indicates that, that in God's sovereign plan... Somehow he has worked into this sovereign plan our activities. And that is part of the calculus of the timing of his return. So what are the, what are the activities? We can find at least four activities in the New Testament that have some effect on the, the timing of the coming of Christ. Well, what's the first one? Well, the first one is here. The first one is living lives of holiness and godliness. You see how these go together. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening? And so we get the idea that that these lives, these lifestyles of holiness and godliness are how we wait for and how we hasten the coming of the day of God. Also... Also, if you go back to verse 9, we saw there, last week, or two weeks ago rather, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, towards you Christians, towards you, not wishing that any of you should perish by following the false teachers, but that all should reach repentance. And we saw that this was a call to Christians to repent. And, and so, if, if our lack of repentance is delaying the coming of the Lord, then, then the, the practice of repentance would serve to hasten the coming of the day of the Lord. Now, this was very much in keeping with some Jewish sayings. There were a couple popular Jewish sayings. One of them was this. If all Israel would obey the Torah for one day... Messiah would come. And there was another similar one. If all Israel would repent for one day, Messiah would come. And, and, and Peter is, is Christianizing that idea, giving us the idea that, that if all the church, if all Christians would truly, truly repent one day, that would hasten the coming of the day of the Lord. Well, those are the first two. These lifestyles of godliness and holiness and, and repentance on the part of Christians. And then, there are two more. 
One of them is so common, we, we did it today. It's so common that we may have overlooked it. In, in the prayer that the Lord taught us to pray, one of those petitions is what? Your kingdom! Your kingdom come! And that's a prayer for Christ to come. And, and also, Paul at the end of 1 Corinthians 16, or end of 1 Corinthians in verse 16, 22, he says, after all this long letter, he says, Oh Lord, come! And how does the Bible end? How does the New Testament end? One of the last lines, Revelation 22, 20 is, Come, Lord Jesus. So what's the third thing we can do to, to hasten that day? We can pray. Lives of holiness and godliness. Repentance on the part of Christians. And praying that that day would come. But the fourth one is this. The fourth one is to get the gospel out to the nations. To preach the gospel. What does that have to do with it? Well, if you go back to Matthew 24, Jesus' discourse there in verse 14, He said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, all all ethnic groups, and then the end will come. When will the end come? When we finish the task that God has given us to do. When will the end come? When we take seriously the fulfillment of this task that He's laid upon His church to get the gospel out to all the nations, lives of holiness and godliness, repentance on the part of Christians, prayer for the kingdom to come, and the effort to get the gospel out to the nations. These things, these things conspire to hasten the coming of the day of God. Now, As we wait for this day, so far, you might think, I'm not sure I really want this day to come. Because, so far, the description has not been pleasant. So far, the description of this day is universal destruction. The burning up of all things, the exposing of all things. And even we Christians might say, we're not so sure we want that to happen. That doesn't sound Pleasant, does it? But, in verse 13, we discover something. Where where Peter says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And here we discover something. That this, this demolition project, this universal demolition project is the preface to a renovation project. And if we read only up to this point, we we wouldn't know that. We would think it's all just going to be burned up and destroyed. How many of you have done renovation projects in your homes? What's the first thing you need to do? Crowbar. Sledgehammer. Right? That's the stuff that all of us like to do, right? (laughs) Destroy. And if somebody would come in and watch you beating up your own house, they'd say, what are you doing? Why are you destroying your kitchen? Why are you destroying your bathroom? Why are you destroying your home? And you would say, oh, this is just the first step. And it's a necessary step. It has to be taken out. Because we have something new in mind. And that's what we learn here. That there is something new in mind. God's plan for His good universe is not to destroy it. It is to renew it. To make it all 
new. And that's what we see. Isaiah 65, 17, which we read today. Isaiah 66, verse 22. God says, I'm going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And Peter says, Amen. And we know when that will be. It will be on that day. That day when Christ comes again. Now, we need to, to appreciate this. Because many times Christians, I hear this oftentimes, and I often hear it when Christians express their hope. And I often hear this in funerals. That we stop short of what God is, is making for us. And we long for heaven. After we die, we long for heaven. And in funerals, we talk about heaven. And heaven is a, a wonderful blessing. It, it, it's being with Christ upon our deaths, even as our bodies in the graves are decaying. Immediately with Christ, we have that hope. But that's not the end. That's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is not to be disembodied spirits. As glorious that, as that will be to be with Christ, God, God made the human body and He made it good. God, God made this earth and He made it good. God made the, the stars and the, the, the moons and the planets. He made the universe and He made it good and He's not giving up on it. He is going to remake it all. That is our hope. That is our hope. That, that, that we would be in a new heavens. And a new earth. And, and, and I say that because we don't want to stop short of God's Renault project. He's, he's doing something bigger than just wafting our souls to be with Jesus as glory as that will be upon our deaths. He is going to remake all things, including, including these physical human bodies. Now the great thing about the new heavens and the new earth is that righteousness will make its home there. Righteousness will dwell there. Righteousness will abide there. Not just flash there. Not just show up there. Not just be glimpsed there. It will be there. Now, if this description of the new heavens and the new earth does not sound attractive to us, then that lack of appeal shows how little we comprehend the beauty of righteousness. And in order to try to paint the beauty of righteousness so that we long for righteousness and long to be in that that new heavens and that new earth where righteousness and only righteousness dwells, maybe a first step towards that, that sort of comprehension and longing would be this. Can you imagine... A world in which, just for starters, not even having righteousness, but just no unrighteousness. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine how amazing that world would be? Even without positive righteousness. Just having no unrighteousness. No dishonesty. No stealing. No immorality. No no abuse. No taking advantage of one to another. Um, no, no selfishness, no unkindness. Can you imagine a world like that? That would be amazing. And then, if there's no unrighteousness, none of the consequences of unrighteousness, no loneliness, no pain, no death, no, no crying, no sickness, no suffering, no abandonment. Can you imagine that? That in itself would be amazing. If just getting rid of the unrighteousness... And, and its consequences. 
And then if you can imagine that, let's try to take a step and build upon that. And what if in place of all that unrighteousness, there were righteousness, a world, a heavens, an existence, a universe with only love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And that's all you could find there and the many other qualities we find in Scripture. Can you imagine a place like that? That is the, the picture that we're being given here. And, and the, the call, with, with that vision in mind, the call getting, getting back to, to this, this earth in our present existence, what's the takeaway? The takeaway is, folks, you're in the preparatory stage of that. And if, if righteousness is going to characterize that existence, well, you better get practicing now. You better get used to the idea now. You better learn about how that works now before it comes. There's a harrowing verse at the end of Revelation 22, verses 10 and 11. Two verses. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right. And the holy still be holy. The end. It was near. And so... He was saying, well, the way you've lived your life is how you're going to live eternity. And that's a harrowing idea. And it's an encouraging idea as well. That we, in, in, this, in this practice time, that we can learn to live lives of righteousness. Now some who look at this verse and hear the, the hope of Christians might say, you hate the world. You want it to be all burned up. You hate the world. But we don't hate the world. But we long for the world to be set free. And we read in Scripture that God's plan is huge. It's universal. It's cosmic. That God sent His Son not just to, to pluck out of this world billions of individuals and to save us although that's that's part of it Christ came and lived and died and rose again so that those who trust in him might be rescued as Paul says from this present evil age yes it's an individual salvation but God has a a renovation project that's that's enormous if you go to Romans chapter 8 Verses 19 to 23, Paul there personifies the creation. And he says, all of us are groaning. All of us who, who know Christ, all of us who have trusted in Christ, all of us who have received the Spirit, we're groaning. Why? Because we're still in this, this flesh, this mortal body. 
and we feel dragged down and we feel oppressed and we groan and we long for release, we long for rescue, we long for redemption. And he says, you're not alone. The whole creation is groaning along with you. And that creation is longing for the liberation of the sons of God. That it wants to be liberated just like you do. And that is part of God's plan. A liberation plan of the whole thing, the whole universe. In the last battle, things just kept getting worse and worse. And all of a sudden, the children whom we meet in the first books, they show up in Narnia. And they were supposedly too old to go to Narnia. But but they had been standing on the platform at a train station. And they noticed, the last thing they remembered before getting to Narnia is that the train was coming around the corner and it seemed to be taking the corner too fast. And then there was this loud noise and they found themselves in Narnia again. And they found themselves at the very end of the last battle. And it was not going well. Until Aslan the son of the emperor, the the king of Narnia, he showed up. And he put things right. And he he called. Once the children were all inside the stable door, he he called to, to Father Time. And he said, Time! Three times louder and louder, Time! And Time reached out and snuffed out the sun. And the world went dark. And the door was closed on the world. And Lucy, the most sensitive of the children, she began to weep because Narnia was gone. It had just been snuffed out. She just watched Narnia die. And then the children began to look around and see where they were. And they said, there's something curious about this place. And there was a a tree with fruit. And, And Peter said... Or maybe it wasn't Peter. Yes, it was hiking Peter. I think Peter said, I think we're in a place where everything is allowed now. Let's eat the fruit. And they ate the fruit and it was the best fruit they'd ever had. And then they began to look around and they said, we feel like this is vaguely familiar. And then they began to recognize scenes from Narnia. And then they kept going higher up and higher in or farther in. And they kept seeing more and more things. And they looked down and they saw England. And they thought, what's going on here? And they realized that that Narnia had not been extinguished. Everything from that old Narnia that was good had come into this new Narnia. And everything that was good from England had come into this new world, Aslan's land. And they realized that Narnia had not been snuffed out. It was that temporary Narnia that was gone. It was that temporary world that had been snuffed out. And now the real world was starting. And now the, the real Narnia was beginning. And so we get to the end. Aslan turned to them and said, You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, We're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan. And and you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident 
said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the shadow lands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. See, Sam? I told you. You have to read the end of the story. And when you read the end of the story, everything else makes sense. But Christian, where are we now? We're on the cover We're writing the title page of the rest of the book. But the cover and the title page are significant. And what we write now affects the way the story goes. So, we need to jump ahead, look at that last chapter, see how the story ends, So we know how to write our lives now. Let's pray. God, we thank you for showing us how it ends. Otherwise, we might despair. We thank you for giving us this preview of coming attractions. New heavens, new earth in which righteousness dwells. Oh God, put in us a longing. A longing for that new heavens and a new earth. So that we might write our stories well now. So that we might do all we can to live in the light of that final chapter. That we might do all we can to wait for, and not only wait for, but to hasten the coming of the day of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.